We're going to be looking at Psalm 30 this morning. And thank you for the water, whoever brought this to me. As we've been going through the Psalms together, We've been doing it in groups of ten, off and on, and so this concludes a group of ten. I have no idea what I'm going to preach on next week. It means I'm supposed to start another book. So uh, pray that God will lead, even in this, that's something that probably most of the time you all don't think about, uh, <clears throat> but it's one of the things that we do look to God to give us wisdom for knowing what would be good for us as a church to study. Maybe we'll do ten more psalms. But Psalm 30 is a beautiful psalm, and it seems like by the time you get through ten psalms, uh, you've read a lot of the same things, right? There's a lot of repetition in the psalms. And uh, and so let's not be let's not be too harsh on modern praise music with its re- repetition. Um, the psalms are repetitive. Sometimes individual psalms are very repetitive. Why are they repetitive? Because there are things that we need to say and hear and be reminded of over and over again. Right. So here in this psalm, we run into similar themes to ones that we've looked at in past weeks. And again, this is a psalm of David, and so his life and what he faced, his struggles and his blessings from God come into play in thinking about the psalm, though we don't uh, often know precisely when the Psalms were written. In this case, we are given that information. A psalm, a song at the dedication of the house. What is the house? What do you guys think? What is the house, kids? When the house is dedicated, what house would that be talking about? Oh, we got a hand. Yes, Liam. The temple. It's a good guess, but it can't be right. It can't be right because who built the temple? Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> David's son built the temple, but it's real close. You're real close to right. We can often get the temple and one other thing confused. Yeah. God's temple. Well, it's the place, just like the temple, where God made his presence among his people known, right? What was it? The tabernacle. Got some good guesses out there, but nobody got it this time. But the dedication of the house. Probably it's speaking of the tabernacle. And we just got done as a family reading 
about the bringing in of the ark to the city of Jerusalem, to the tabernacle, which is around the same time that David gets the idea of building a temple and says, here I am living in a house of cedar. So if it's talking about his house, it doesn't seem likely because we don't have any record of his house being dedicated, right? But if it was talking about his house, he's looking around and he's seeing a nice house. Some of us have really nice houses, right? He looks around and he sees cedar everywhere. Who would like to have a nicely cedar-paneled house? It smells good, right? David was, at this time, regardless, being blessed by the Lord. God had brought him through many troubles and had set him securely on his throne. He was defeating his enemies. He was receiving blessings from the Lord. He had a nice house. He had restored the uh, ark to the tabernacle. In the city that he lived in, God was present among his people. And it was a wonderful wonderful time. And when David came into the city celebrating, his wife, Michael, despised him. Because he was too emotional, too uh, too excited. He let himself get carried away. Now, I start with all of that as an introduction before we read the psalm because I want you to know what's face, what David is facing in his life, what's been going on. Um, and I want you to know <clears throat> that... Uh, David was not somebody who let himself be repressed, even by his wife, in worship of the Lord. He did not get embarrassed as he wrote these psalms, as he wrote repetitively, as he said the same thing, as he praised God, as he sang. It was not something that he, you know did when he was alone in the car with the windows rolled up, right? This was something that he gave himself to exuberantly, excitedly. And so, here he has a great excuse to write a song. He has a great excuse to sing praises to God. And we're going to look at what he wrote at that time. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 30. A psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, a psalm of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. 
O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Many times we are tempted to remake God in our own sinful image. We make God's anger long like ours. We make His favor stingy like ours. What does David say? His favor is for a lifetime. His favor is for a lifetime. What does he say about his anger? His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. So when we think of God and we think of Him as impossible to please, always angry at us, we are being like the servant who looked at his master and said, I knew you were a hard master. So I buried my talent there. You have what's yours. But God is not a harsh taskmaster, though that did make the master angry, did it not? (laughs) You wicked, disobedient slave. You knew I was that way, huh? Then why didn't you do something useful? In other words, even if God was that way, the way we respond is wrong. But He's not. 
So let us not make God in our own image. Let us not make God into a man, a man who is sinful, a man like us whose anger cannot be met, whose wrath keeps going, who holds grudges, and whose favor is stingy. Now, is that the only way that we are tempted to remake God and his character in our own image? No, but it is one way, right? To look at God as a, a, a harsh taskmaster. But there's another way. And I think that other way is even more common today. And that is to remake God as the great grandfather in the sky who not only is filled with sweet gentleness and lots of candy, right? But also who never ever gets mad at all. There is no anger even for a moment from the great-grandfather-in-the-sky God that we've made as a culture, right? And yet what we have here is we have a clear statement about how God interacts with his people. And we know that he does discipline, that he does get angry. We also know, though, that his wrath is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. If his anger is for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Kids, Does that remind you of one of the Ten Commandments? Does that remind you of one of the Ten Commandments? His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. You think of generations. Where are generations mentioned in the Ten Commandments? Yeah. That's right. His loving kindness goes for generations. And what is that contrasted with in the commandment? Yeah. That's right. His anger to the third and fourth generation of those who are sinners and his love to a thousand generations those who love him and keep his commandments, right? And so, we have this image in multiple places throughout Scripture, don't we? That there's this contrast between his anger and his love. Now, is God fighting with himself? He can't just make up his mind whether he's angry or whether he's loving? whether he's wrathful or whether he is merciful. No, God's 
character is perfect and he is angry with the wicked all the time. All the time. Permanently. Perpetually. Angry with the wicked. And yet, if he were not merciful, that would be the only thing that we could say. Because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all sinned. Every one of us has turned aside, right? And so, if there was not mercy in God's character, that would be all there is for Him to interact with humans. It would just be wrath. So because He is merciful, He breaks the cycle He inserts himself into the generations of man and he ends patterns of sin. He ends slavery to sin. He ends death and destruction and hell and condemnation. And instead, he pours out of his great love on a people who are his enemies still at that time Love, mercy, out of his patience, he delays in pouring out his wrath. He saves. And so, is his, is his arm too short to save? No. Is he unwilling to save? No. He brings up our souls from Sheol. When we cry to Him for help, He heals us. He saves us from our enemies. He lifts us up. This is what we see in this passage. We see David describing what had happened to him. He had faced these things. His anger is but for a moment. Now, David believes this for real. He really, really believes when he says his wrath is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. And do you know how you know that he really, truly believes that? It's not just something that he says out of super spiritual uh, ideas that sound nice to put down in a song? Because he acted on that statement. You remember that God was angry with the Israelites while David was still king. Later on in David's life, he was angry when a census was taken. Do you kids remember this story? God gave a choice through the prophet to King David. And the choice was three options for what his discipline would be, what the punishment would be for David and the people that he was king over. God's people. 
Kids, have you ever had your parents offer you a choice of what your punishment is going to be? I don't see any, I don't see any nodding heads out there, not yet. <clears throat> Anybody? Anybody? How about any of you adults? Did any of your uh, parents ever do that with you? The, the whip or the rack? <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Talk to me afterwards. <laughs> We don't, we don't generally give that kind of choice, right? But there are, there are times where we realize that we have to pick the bad thing that's going to happen, the bad thing that we're going to face, right? And in this case, the choice that was before David was what the punishment was going to be. And you know what he did? He chose believing this to be true, that God's wrath, His anger, is but for a moment. But His love, His favor, is for a lifetime. He cast Himself on the mercy of God, and He said, I go with the one where God is dealing with me directly, because God is merciful. Perhaps He will stop early. Think about that. David believed what he wrote here, didn't he? David believed that God's wrath, his anger, is but for a moment. And so he cast himself on God's direct punishment, hoping for mercy when presented with a choice of punishments. And then he says his favor is for a lifetime. Now, I want you to think about David's life and think about how much of his life he spent running away just from Saul. It's a lot of time, isn't it? David did not have an easy life. David did not have the um, the kind of life that most of us would choose. We might think that it would be nice to be king, but do you want to go through what it took for David to get there? Do you want to face the trials of faith? Do you want to go up against Goliath, just at the very start, right? Oh, not at the start, because there were lions and bears before that. David believed when he said that God's favor is for a lifetime, but an awful lot of David's life, there was not this sort of external favor that we think of as being obvious favor from the Lord. At this time, when he writes this, yeah, he's on easy street in a lot of ways, right? But it's not going to be forever, is it? The easy street is not forever. That's not what it says. God's favor is forever. His favor is for a lifetime. 
David spent years suffering, but he viewed the Lord's favor as far outweighing that suffering. Now in the Old Testament, we see over and over again, the Israelites, when blessed by God's favor with earthly blessings, with easy street, if you will, the land flowing with milk and honey, rescue from Egypt, a king, just like they asked for. What we see is that when they receive those earthly blessings, they tend to forget Him. We do the same. When we live in times of ease and comfort, it is easy to forget God. Though He is the one who poured out His favor on us and gave us those blessings. And so when David says in verse 6, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Is that, is that something that we should say or that we shouldn't say? Is David revealing something good or bad about himself? You think bad? You had a 50-50 choice, man. That's good. You're right. I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. That's not the way that we should talk. Is our prosperity for a lifetime? No. God's favor is for a lifetime. We can think that because we have prosperity that we are protected. We can think that because we're strong, we'll always be able to provide for our needs and those of our family. We can think, I will never be moved. But the fact of the matter is, God will never be moved. We are leaves blowing in the wind. We are grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. The flower that blooms, and is beautiful, and then fades and is gone. The Lord will never be moved, but we in our prosperity are idiots if we think, I will never be moved. And you see what happens when David says this, right? He says, <clears throat> O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. I was standing on a mountain that God put me on, and I was saying, I will never be moved. In, in, in my prosperity, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I've got it made. But what happens? God hid his face, and just like that, David was moved, wasn't he? He was dismayed. His bowels were moving. 
Now, I know that's not a pretty thought, but that's what it means to be dismayed, right? Have you ever had your stomach that way? Clenched into a mess that you can't deal with the stress and the strain of life. When God hides his face, we are dismayed, though we thought we would never be moved. And so how does David respond? To you, O Lord, I called. And to the Lord, I made supplication. He realized it's back to God or there's no hope. I have been moved. He must be my rock. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? This is what he calls out to God, right? This is his supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. What is that prayer? It's beautiful. It's honest. It's honest about what he's facing. It's, about, it's honest about how he feels. What profit is there in my blood? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? When God hides his face and we become dismayed, this is to be our prayer. God, your name must be magnified. That's what my life is for. That's why you made me, right? This is man's chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God, I'm supposed to glorify you. If you obliterate me, I won't be able to. Now, don't be ashamed of that prayer. Don't be, don't be self-conscious about praying that. That's a beautiful prayer. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? So what he's saying is not just save me. He's saying so that I may praise you. So that I may glorify you. In other words, here he started on the rock. God had placed him in prosperity. He thinks to himself, oh yeah, I've got it made. God says, remember, I'm the one who gave this to you. David is dismayed because God hides his face. And David prays and says, right. God, you're the one who made me. I'm supposed to glorify you with my life. Now, Save me, and I'll glorify you. 
But if you don't save me, I'm going to die and I won't be able to glorify you. You see, this is something that we go through all the time. This is something that the Israelites went through all the time. Forgetting God. Forgetting God. How many times per day do we forget God? When we're interacting with our husbands, our wife, our children, our co-workers, when something goes wrong. But especially when everything is going right. Especially when everything is going right. We forget God. Even David, the man after God's own heart, forgot God in his prosperity. Will the dust praise you? Meaning, if you save me, I will. Don't just make me into dust. I know I said I was going to talk about that scripture lesson and I think I told you I was going to do that. We don't have time. I'm just going to have to preach through that book sometime because it's it's beautiful and the connection with this psalm is amazing. But I want to end with going back to where we were at the beginning. David is not ashamed to praise God, to let loose, to be wild, to be so wild that his wife despises him. This is what it looks like when he says that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. What does it look like to be dead? Nothing happens. Nothing moves. No sound. No praise. Certainly, no joy. No gladness. What does it look like to be dust? Nothing. It's gone. It blows away. That's it. What does it look like to praise God? It looks like not being dead, people. Right? Do you know how to praise God? Now, we're a Reformed church, so the idea of being dead in our worship is practically built into our DNA. And that's why we have to, we have to study the Psalms, because David will not let us be dead as we come before him, before God, to worship. David insists in his songs, he insists in his worship leadership, he says, stand up. He says, clap your hands. He says, be alive. He says, sing it. Say it. Praise God. This is the the insistence of David as the psalm writer, as the psalmist. And then what does he do? He puts men over the singing. He's like, you know what? This is important. This is such an important job. 
This is, this is something that we need some guys who, that's their full-time job. Let's get, let's get a whole clan of them going on writing songs and, and leading worship. <laughs> this is not dead orthodoxy, is it? This is, this is living praise. And it has to be because you've got God's wrath for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. How could you respond with anything besides joy, gladness, pouring out praise? And that praise, the moment you stop, the moment that you forget, oh yeah, this is God's favor that I'm basking in, not my prosperity that I created. The moment you forget, of course you stop praising God. And so the reason that Reformed Church's DNA is dead orthodoxy is because they're rich, prosperous. That's when we forget God. In our prosperity, we say, I will not be moved. I've got it made in this world. When God hides his face, we will be dismayed and we will be reminded that it is time to be alive. That if he saves us, our singing should last as long as his favor for a lifetime. So will you join your voices with David's, with mine, with Alex's, with the sons of Korah and the sons of Asaph? Will you praise him for a lifetime? Or will you forget him and be moved dismayed, and dead. Let's be alive. Let's sing. Amen? Stand and let's pray and then we'll sing.